Well, it is a joy to be sharing God's word with you this morning. And um, my name is uh, Steve, for those of you who don't know me. And whether you followed Jesus for a long time or this is your first time here, you've been dragged along with a friend, you are so welcome. Um, I've been a part of this community for the past couple of years, and I'm privileged to serve on the leadership team here. Um, but most of all, like, I'm grateful for this opportunity to share with you guys who are my family. I also work for Alpha Canada, where I am the ministry director of, um, of our ministry development. And basically what I do is I get to work with an amazing team of people that is working with churches all across Canada to help engage those outside the church, to invite people into a conversation about faith, life, and God. So today we take a little departure from our series in Shadowlands, but don't worry, we'll be right back next week. But I want to talk to us a little bit today about our cultural moment, about where we find ourselves today in Vancouver in 2017, and how we navigate the complexities of our culture in order to become the people that God has called us to be, to live out our redemptive potential in the world, to bring life and blessing to this chaotic world that we find ourselves in. In Canada, and especially in Vancouver, we are living in a cultural moment where Christianity is increasingly becoming a minority. In a nation and a city that is awash with religious pluralism, it's understandable that we can often feel confused and even lost about our place in culture. We may even feel scared or ill-equipped to engage with the voices of our culture that are constantly telling us to go our own way instead of God's way. In one word, we feel powerless. Powerless. What difference can a minority, an often unwanted minority, make? Today, I want to take us to St. Paul's first letter of the Corinthians and to give us a bit of background before we dive in. Uh, Corinth, where Paul goes, is the city. It's a bustling port city with a lot of diversity. Um, and in the city, we, we encounter a lot of different Greek and Roman temples, and there was all sorts of different worship that was going on. Paul ends up going strategically to that city because that was the center of culture in those days. It was a place where people were coming to and going from. So Paul comes to Corinth to be a missionary there. He spends his time there getting to know people, building relationships, engaging people where they are at. And, he, and while doing so, he talks to them about Jesus. And after about a year and a half, a number of these people become followers of Jesus, and a church is birthed. And through this community, you can read a little bit more about it in Acts 18 if you want. But um, Paul stays there for a while, and then he moves on to plant churches in other cities. And after a while, he starts hearing a bunch of reports that things in this community actually aren't going so well. So Paul writes to them to help them navigate the complexities of following Jesus in a world where there are lots of idols and there's a lot of religious pluralism and different ideas of how life should be lived. And essentially, the Corinthians were being influenced by these cultural forces that were happening in their time that were um, inhibiting them from living out their lives at the way that God intended them to. So essentially, Paul comes and he writes them this letter and he helps them think about every area of their life through the lens of the gospel, whether it's divisions or, or sex or how to live or what to eat and all these different things that they're struggling with. Paul comes and helps them reinterpret 
how they live through the lens of the gospel. So if you have your Bible with me, you can join me in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. I'm reading from the NRV, which might be a little bit of a different version than that's up here. I just realized that this morning. But um, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? For God Has the God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. But God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For many today, the idea of God, or certainly the idea of Jesus and following a crucified savior is just downright foolish. It's old school thinking. It's out of fashion. And often our response as Christians is to try come up with creative ways of making Christianity cool enough so they would get it. The truth is, for me, most of my life, I've lived in this ethic of relevance, of wanting to prove to the world that we can be both Christians and believers and carry this contemporary currency of cool. <laughs> However, as Paul articulates to us in the passage, I just don't think that this is the case. I don't even think that this is really possible. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For many of us in our current culture and in our cultural moment, the wisdom of this age, the intolerance of tolerance, proves to be too much for us. And we end up boxing our belief as what Mark Sayers calls an orthodox secular mashup, where we believe God and we follow Jesus, but yet we actually don't live according to what we believe. It's a little bit like what's happening in Corinth. They believe these certain things and they've been preached the gospel, but they're not living according to what they believe. So inevitably, we end up stop attending church. And sometimes we may even just disappear into the cold embrace of secularity. A lot of the time, we can feel disempowered in our faith. And this raises the question, is this just me or has the power gone out? But maybe it's time to get plugged back in, to recalibrate again, to realign with God's purpose and calling in our lives. For me, a significant moment when the lights came back on was a number of years ago. At the time, I was 23, and I was living a life that I could never have dreamed of. I was waking up on the 40th floor of an apartment in Dubai, a walk-in closet, an ensuite bathroom overlooking the Arabian Gulf. Working my dream job at the time, I thought that I had arrived. But amidst this new world, fast-tracking it to success, I found myself in a desert. Not only a literal one, but a spiritual one as well. <laughs> Maybe you can relate. Maybe you have it all, the dream life, but you still feel like something's missing. Or you feel like you're trying so hard to live your life as a Christian, but it feels like you're not plugged into the power source. At the time, I was living in an Arab Muslim culture with Christianity being the minority faith. I would wake up each day with a call to prayer from the mosque um, over the road with this minaret stretched high into the hazy abyss, and the sound would go off. And I used to wake up and, 
And, um, you know, I had one of these moments where I felt a little bit like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz where I thought to myself, this ain't Kansas anymore. <laughs> Blurry-eyed, I'd take the elevator up to the pool on my roof. And as I went up in the morning, I'd look out and I'd cry out to God, searching for answers to the questions that raged in my mind. Questions like, who is this God I believe and how is he different from Allah? Is Jesus who he says he is? Am I a Christian as a result of being shaped by my culture, of being raised in the church? And how do I even navigate my faith in this culture that is so foreign from my own? So matter, no matter where we are in the world, the moment we start to follow Jesus, it raises these sorts of questions. Because in a culture like ours, we come under fire. Because when we follow Jesus, we inherently choose a different way than following the world. Questions about what we do and how we live faithfully as a people of God in a culture that has very different ideas about how we should live. So from the passage today we read, we find God's people in a, in a different but yet similar situation. They are the powerless minority and often overcome by the same dominant cultural forces and don't end up living what they believe. But St. Paul writes to them to help them respond. And for many of us as followers of Jesus, um, we, are, we feel like we're moving more and more into a culture of exile. And maybe if we're honest, we feel like the Corinthians. We feel a little bit discombobulated, shaped by these tectonic forces of culture that we can't control. That we sometimes are not even aware of. And we're assaulted every day when we get up, you know, through our social media feeds, through the news, through shopping malls. We just get these barrages of messages that tell us to live a different way, an alternate way, a more holistic way. You know, live your life to the full for yourself, just as long as you're not hurting anybody else. That's our cultural mant mantra. Paul understood the culture, the church's cultural moments in Corinth, and it was crucial for the Corinthians to understand that as well. How do they follow Jesus in Corinth amidst the pressures that they face. So we're going to ask the same question today. And it's crucial for us to understand our cultural moment and what's going on so we can understand how to live in response to that. So how do we follow Jesus in Vancouver amidst some of the pressures we face? So let's have a look at some of the ways um, in which we can understand that. And then I'll talk a little bit about some of the practical ways in which we can respond. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he was the former chief rabbi to the UK and the Commonwealth, he says this, there is a cultural moment in history and we're living through one now when something new is taking shape but we don't know precisely what it is. We know that something is taking shape but we just have a difficult time saying what it is. And if I asked you, um, do you feel it? I'm pretty sure your response would say yes, I do, but I don't quite know how to describe it. We're living in a world where crazy things like what happened in Charlotte are happening in a world that's supposed to be educated and civilized and progressive to what's going on between the US and, and North Korea and Syria. And all of this is leading to this global angst and confusion. We live in a world that is fragmented and complex, and this results in greater confusion and less confidence in the outcome of society. In our modern and postmodern world, we, we we're taught to think that human progress is inevitably going to end us in a better future, but that hasn't resulted. 
The dogma of our culture says that life is all about feeling good and the inflation of our self-esteem. We live by the creed of consumerism in that we construct our identities through our spending. However, the myth of radical individualism is that we can advance and grow and flourish purely by our own personal agenda. We are marketed to day in, day out, yet ra this radically inflated view of expectations of what the good life is and how we should pursue it no matter the cost. And all of this has contributed to us feeling anxious and depressed. When we have a culture where every second person is struggling with anxiety and depression, and this is real, and many of us in this room feel it, these are some of the reasons. Sometimes these are some of the explanations, and we as a community want to gather around you and walk with you through this. So if you are struggling, there are people that we can talk to, our Stevens ministers, Alistair and Roger, please, let's have the conversation. But a lot of this has been shaped by the culture that we live in. The mantra of our hyper-individualistic culture is that we want to choose what we believe is true. The core value of our society today is self-invention. And this is not hard to illustrate when we look at, our, um, we look at Instagram and Facebook. We become inundated with messages about what to do and what to believe. With autonomy and happiness, being the gods that we bow down to and serve, this total freedom that we buy through our experiences whispers that we can be godlike and have it all while maintaining our individual autonomy. I am what I choose to be. The lie that we've been sold, the myth that we buy into is that this life is possible. A detached, free-floating life bereft of responsibility in which we can walk through the rainstorm and stay dry, avoiding difficulties, denying the existence of evil and pain and trying to push those things we are uncomfortable about outside of our lives. We look away from suffering and broken relationships, the things that humans have always encountered, only to find that our pursuit leaves us burnt out, weary, anxiety-ridden, lonely, depressed, and aching for something more. Depressed yet? This is the world we live in. We are a generation that is skeptical and suspicious of authority for anybody to tell us what to do or think or believe. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. Amidst these voices, suspicion arises. People are left to wonder, what does Christianity have to do with anything? Is Christianity relevant to my life? Is Jesus even vital to my world, my job, my family, my life, my relationships? In fact, in our post-Christian culture, most people's understanding of Christianity is often a an emotional reaction against it in some way. Many people have heard parts of the gospel or versions of it, and they become antagonistic towards it. In our secular world, we want the things of the kingdom without the king. Does this not like sound like Vancouver? We want peace and equality and justice and socioeconomic stability but we don't want Jesus with us. Yet we know as we look at the, the kingdom of God, so many of these things are the exact same principles. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we want to live in the most livable city, whatever that means. We, have, we want these amazing coffee shops, creative industries, craft breweries, radical innovation, entrepreneurship, great public transport where you can walk and bike everywhere. And all of these things are good things, but they are not ultimate things. 
we practice the new civil religion of tolerance with its progressive values. And this is where we are heading. Uh, sociologist James Davison Hunter um, puts it this way. I think it's amazing. Another way to describe the dilemma of a religious faith is that pluralism creates social conditions in which God is no longer an inevitability. While it is possible to believe in God, one has to work much harder at it because the framework of belief is no longer present to sustain it. The presumption of God, of his active presence in the world, cannot be easily sustained because the most important symbols of social, economic, political, and aesthetic life no longer point to him. God simply is less obvious than he once was, and for most, no longer obvious at all. Quite the opposite. All of this, I'm done now. All of this begs the question, what is our response as the church? How do we maintain our calling in this social climate? Often we're left to one of two responses. The one is to assimilate into the culture, become indistinguishable, or the other is to withdraw, to recline into our Christian ghettos, where we build up these neat little walls, where we become our own social club. But this is not the church. This is not what Jesus lived and died for. This all leads to a crisis in the church becoming irrelevant, disengaged. It no longer knows how to relate to the world around it. Therefore, the church grows cold when it no longer lives out the mission for what Jesus died for, and we retreat. But the good news of the gospel is that God's salvation plan is far broader than simply inflating the individual. You have your yoga and mindfulness, and I have my Christianity. That's how I find meaning and purpose. Like, no, we preach Christ crucified because it changes the reality for everyone. What Paul is essentially saying here to the Corinthians is that the kingdom of God is both good news and bad news. Good news for those who grasp their own wretchedness of, of falling short, of in need of a savior from something other than themselves, but bad news for those who wish to preserve their own individual autonomy. And we see time and time again in the Gospels that those who grasp their own weakness, who come to the end of themselves, realize their own limitations are the ones who are closest to the kingdom. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave you? Where does that leave me? Let's pick up again in um, chapter 126. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the world standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to things nothing that are, so that no human being may boast but in the presence of God. St. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, and even to us today, you weren't wise, you weren't powerful, you didn't have it all together, you weren't even noble, you were foolish, you were weak, you were low, and you were despised. Good pep talk, Paul, thanks. But he does capture how many of us feel. We feel that how can we possibly make a difference in this world? A world full of wisdom, of high standards, of perfectly curated Instagram lives. Um, a world that has high standards, power, and classism. A world that is strong and established. But the funny thing is, when it comes to the church 
as a community, it often lives when it dies, and it grows when it gives its heart away. But we have to give our heart away. Archbishop William Temple succinctly put it, he said, the church is the only, it was the only society in the world which exists for the benefit of those who are its non-members. We see right from the beginning, God chooses a people in Israel, not so that he can save them and send them to heaven, but he chooses them for a purpose to bring life and blessing into the world. And we carry that same mandate today. As the people of God, we have this glorious opportunity to learn to be culturally agile and to see all of life through the lens of the gospel. And the amazing thing is that it's not about following rules or keeping our religious duty or staying morally pure, although those things are good, but we're actually invited to participate in the redemption of the world with Jesus. What a privilege. Our work, our commuting, our eating, our drinking, we live a flesh and blood gospel that God is here among us making all things new. So how we live matters. I'm massively hopeful for this church. I've been in Vancouver uh, for the church. I've been in Vancouver about seven years, and, um, and I had the privilege of seeing, having a bit of an objective perspective, seeing what God is doing, of how churches are being birthed all over the city, you know, just like ours, all over the country, and God is working in so many different ways. Um, I get a front row seat at Alpha to see how God changes and transforms lives in amazing ways. You know, no story is the same. Despite living in a culture where fashion trends change and technology um, just changes so fast, we serve a God who never changes from loving us and saving us. Just the other day, I heard Nora's story. You see, Nora had a plan to kill herself. Prior to having a stroke, she was a nurse, so she knew a way that she could take her life by making it look like an accident. She was estranged from her husband and was living with her daughter. As a result of suffering from a stroke, she was almost blind. She had been hiding from everyone and everything for over a year. Nora decided to end her life, and she had decided to do it soon. One day, her daughter's neighbor invited her daughter to Alpha. She didn't want to go alone, so, so asked Nora to go along with her. She figured that she could postpone taking her life just another week just to support her daughter. While supportive of her daughter, she was also anxious about going because um, she didn't have a good history with the church. She felt angry towards God for the death of her parents and, and wrestled with God's love. And, um, and her idea of God was, um, was very different from the one that we encounter in the Bible. The first few weeks of Alpha ended up being this complete surprise to her. She spoke of how God, how she found herself gradually um, looking forward to it each week. She mentioned that she looked forward, hadn't looked forward to anything this much in a long time. And at Alpha, she began making friends and even caught herself laughing a few times. When Nora and her daughter were invited on the weekend, um, her daughter couldn't go, but Nora decided she would go alone. And, and when she went, she found she was surrounded by people who loved her. And it was on the weekend that Nora's eyes and heart began to be open in more ways than one. For it was on the weekend that she encountered Jesus. And these are her words. She says, as I was gathering hugs from my new friends, I came to realize that my vision 
had improved. Nor remembers my field of vision started widening that day and had been doing ever since. She said, best of all, I became acquainted with Jesus. It was he who saw me in my desperate need and sent many people to help me. He used Alpha to save my life, my body, my soul, my spirit. Each of us have a unique opportunity to invite somebody like Nora. Back into the text, Paul preached Christ crucified, and when we live Christ crucified, we learn to rely on God's wisdom and not our own. The way of the kingdom offers us a different reality. God chooses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He uses ordinary people like you and me so that we can boast in Christ. Through the rest of this passage, we see Paul model and propose three different values to be embraced. The first one is to be real. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, I came to the, uh, he comes to the Corinthians not with eloquence and human wisdom, but with humility to serve and proclaim the testimony of God. Jesus gives us a new way to be human because our identity is rooted in him. We have a new identity. We don't have anything to prove to the world anymore. We live for an audience of one. For Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. In verse 2, he says that I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus and him crucified. His whole motivation, his whole mission for being was to see people come to know Jesus through the power of the cross and the resurrection. Jesus on the cross points to a new phase in human history where things have changed and shifted at the ultimate core of creation. And we get to live into a different story. Mark says, says, as Christians, we live before a watching world. We are not called to retreat from the world, nor to embrace it, but we are called to live on earth as it is in heaven. Paul says, I came in weakness, in fear, and trembling. This gives us the opportunity to be real with one another, to share our struggles, to share the difficulties of what it means to live with a human condition. Um, and when we, when we are real with others and we stop pretending that we have it all together, we give people the opportunity to be real with themselves. I love Brene Brown. Um, she talks a lot about vulnerability, and I think it's something that um, our culture resonates deeply with because at, um, at, at our face level, we live in a world that always wants to be strong and on top. But she's come with this message of saying, no, actually, true... Um, true identity in person meaning is, is found when we're vulnerable. She says this, vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper meaning or meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. If we live lives real and vulnerable, we create a space for God to be made much of. The truth of the gospel remains the same. It isn't contingent on us having all the answers. Thank goodness for that. Jesus will always be attractive, completely compelling, and ultimate life-changing. We just need to be ourselves. And the truth is God can use each one of us, um, even our messy lives that are not perfectly put together. With Jesus, our greatest strength can become our greatest, uh, sorry, our greatest weakness can become our greatest strength. 
I want to tell you a story about my friend Devon. Um, she was living an incredible world change in life. She was jetting all over the globe, um, helping the least of these. She was um, doing missionary work in Haiti and Uganda and a whole lot of other different places to use her talents in art and design to bring color and life and love to people's lives. And she is one of the craziest, most um, courageous, and most inspiring people I know. But about four years ago, she was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, which pretty much means that the doctors just can't figure out what the heck's wrong with you. So she went from traveling around the globe to not being able to get out of bed for weeks at a time, not being able to do anything or go anywhere. Her immune system was too weak to travel or fly. And to say she went through dark days was an understatement. But in this time, compelled that God was still God and that her suffering was still incomparable to so many around the world, she found the courage and strength in her faith to continue to do what she had been called to do, which was to love people and the least of these in the tangible ways that she could. One of the ways that she did this was that she started a company in Uganda called Artisan Apparel and helping local women start businesses with their skills. And what the amazing thing about the story is that she's never even met these people in her life before. And they're just creating these beautiful creations and have now um, you know, been able to have income to provide for their families. And she's done that in her weakness. More recently, she's been involved in a local community project with underprivileged kids in LA, doing amazing things, just loving people and giving people a hope for a future. Um, I was chatting to her the other day, and this is what she said to me. She said, I am delighting in what God is doing in my life. I just have nothing but joy and freedom. I feel like I'm understanding the truth of God that is not based on feeling, on idealism, or memory, but on truth. And there's nothing that can change that. God is so good and so faithful. I just feel so satisfied after a dark time and now seeing God in full color and light. You know, we do pass through some shadowy days sometimes, but the contentment and the joy that is captured in here when she is still battling her autoimmune disease, and there's no sign of that ever going, but God meets us where we are at in our circumstances. The second way that we can practically engage is to be relational, to build relationships with people. We need to do this as a community. Faith is not an individual pursuit. God, by very nature, is relational. So he's best reflected not merely in our individual lives, but in the context of community, because we are created from relationship for relationship. We are a community that help people to belong before they believe, and not just preach to them, but to listen. Our response to the needs of this world should be to be being open to them, extending the hand to the other through relationship. So as Preston mentioned in his notices, let's, let's get out there, let's build relationships, let's look for opportunities to, um, to meet people that we wouldn't usually do. Take that step, be courageous. Pete Gregg in his book Dirty Glory says, for a long time, evangelism has been a one-way performance, a soliloquy delivered, delivered from an elevated platform by an actor hoping for applause. But Jesus shows up, shows us, how to bring good news in relationships all around us as a mutual movement towards beauty, an intimate invitation to dance 
We are sent out as missionaries to build relationships that are real, not just to preach, but also to listen, not just to witness to Jesus, but to worship with the lost and not just to save others, but to get saved ourselves. One of our core values at St. Peter's is the joy of salvation. And part of experiencing the joy of salvation is experiencing somebody else's life changed and transformed because of Jesus. If we want joy, that's how we get it. We share our joy so other people may know joy. And I think that this can best happen in our culture around a table. This is one of the reasons why we do Alpha, to build relationship with those outside the church, to create a space for conversation. The Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. I love this quote by John Mark Comer, who's a pastor down in Portland. He says that evangelism is done, if not best, then at least really well around a table. We have community around a table with the gospel and an openness to the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? For when we are a community of people called by Christ, living as the church, when we come together, something truly amazing happens. I'm often encouraged by the story of the disciples after Jesus has risen from, the, he's been crucified actually, but he's raised from the dead. And the disciples are, they haven't encountered him yet and they're hiding behind locked doors with, for fear of the Jews. We read this in John chapter 20. And it says that they were hiding behind locked doors with fear because of the authorities. Their world was confused. They didn't know what would happen. They were following Jesus and all of a sudden he's died and their whole vision of the kingdom was not how they had expected it to turn out. And Jesus comes and he stands in their midst and their fear is turned to joy and Jesus sends them out in the power of the Spirit, this ragtag bunch of fishermen to go and change the world. You see, we are a sent people, but we need each other to do it. And thirdly, and most importantly, uh, we need to be reliant. We need to be reliant on the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul said, I came in weakness, in fear and trembling. My message was not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. We don't need to have all the answers. We don't need to wax eloquently and um, have be, you know, have gone to region, to whatever it is. God just simply needs us to show up and rely on his power. Um, Mark says, says that a part of living well and being reliant and resilient in our culture is that resilience comes from putting to death in you that which is not under the lordship of Christ. Meaning is found in the battle, the war between the flesh and the spirit, between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom, between what is seen and unseen. The great hope of the church in our world is people walking in the living God, being filled with the spirit, crucifying the flesh daily, living as citizens of heaven and ambassadors of the kingdom, reflecting Christ's likeness. That is the purpose of your life. But we can only do that with the help of the spirit. Growing up, uh, we had an old piano in our house, and um, as kids, we used to go and um, attempt to play it, and often it just sounded like a lot of noise as we were clanking the, key, the keys. And every now and then, somebody would come and play the piano, those very same keys, and beautiful music would resound. You see, God takes our noisy attempts, and with His Holy Spirit, He brings us into harmony to make beautiful music. So I conclude, as a powerless minority, when we are real and we are relational 
and we rely on the Holy Spirit, we discover that our weakness is our greatest asset because we trust in the power of God to do what we can't do. After all, is the one that we not follow, not the one who was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows? Was he not ultimately the powerless minority? Jesus was a Jew in Galilee, of all places, under Roman authority and influence. He was crucified, just one more death at the hands of the Romans. And yet, Paul says that it is this and this alone that he'll preach. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. My speech and message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the power of God. So this is where we find our confidence to continue to engage in our culture as a powerless minority. We can't change anything our own, but Jesus can and Jesus does. My time in Dubai, my wrestling, my questions led me to affirm in my faith that Jesus is who he says he is. In my experience, when we truly encounter the gospel, it disrupts our lives that ultimately leads to flourishing. For me, that meant moving to the other side of the world, away from friends, from family, from a country I loved, to a city on the west coast of Canada where I had to learn to drink proper coffee I'll have a double shot skinny latte and eat gluten-free to a place where it rains most of the year and most people vehemently oppose the gospel. Ultimately, I'm convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, Jesus offers us life, abundant life, true life and flourishing, but this only happens when we come to the end of ourselves and we realize that we are weak, but he is strong. The courage to continue to engage our culture comes from asking the question, what does the cross tell me about this? Because no matter how broken or challenging situation you may be in, the cross reminds us that God can be found even there, working surprisingly in our weakness to bring life. Jesus died so that there's hope for you, for me, today and every day until the new heaven and the new earth will be our reality. So as we move now into a time of communion, we are reminded of the freedom and the reality of grace, that we don't have to do anything to know God. We just have to receive his gift of grace given to broken sinners like you and me, to the uninfluential, the normal people, it's the ultimate equalizing force. It's important to know that all of us are welcome. There are no unlikely choices because God chooses you to be his hands and feet. So come just as you are.